You're listening. No. You're listening to the Buns.com Podcast Network. (laughs) (laughs) Buns, buns, buns. Can you give me a soundtrack? In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. (laughs) Wow. That Everybody was, uh, always goes check, check, check. From Sustainable Joe's, this is 2084, a podcast about designing tomorrow, creating a sustainable future for all, as told by the people building it today. My name is Stephen Such. I'm the founder of Sustainable Joe's, and I'm very excited to welcome you to episode 19 of Sustainable Joe's 2084. This episode was recorded live with a man I greatly respect. He's one of Canada's social justice all-stars. And his Toronto-based social consultancy has worked on projects all around the world. Now, before I tell you what Mr. Alex Gill and I talked about, I want to acknowledge some of our supporters who make this podcast happen. This episode of 2084 is brought to you by Bullfrog Power. In fact, this recording is Bullfrog powered with 100% green electricity and you too can choose green energy for your home or business and support the development of community-based renewable energy projects across Canada at bullfrogpower.com. We also wanna say thank you to Steam Whistle from their 100% renewably powered brewery to their green bottles, which can be reused up to three times more than a standard brown beer bottle, quote unquote. Steam Whistle is proud to support Sustainable Joes as we work to create a sustainable tomorrow together. We also are thankful for the support of Buns, your city network. Buns connects you with the people in your neighborhood to help you find the things you need to fuel your life. You can swap things you already have, find jobs, homes for rent, advice, and just a place to talk about your city. Buns is available online at buns.com and on your phone via apps at the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Lastly, this podcast is publicly funded thanks to our patrons who support Sustainable Joes. From our documentary, which is available right now for free at sustainablejoes.com to this very podcast, we offer this content for free to add value to everyone and support our shared future. Like any public broadcast to continue providing this content free, we do ask for your support. We have patrons who support at a dollar a month and others at $20 a month. Thank you, everybody. Now for today's episode, this is an uncut and candid live recording of 2084 as I sat down with Alex Gill, co-founder of the Toronto-based social consultancy Mendicant Group, Ryerson University Social Venture Zone, and one of Canada's social justice all-stars. In this conversation, Alex shed some light on what social justice is, strategies you can take to move your venture forward, and how we as a society can use the market, in fact, to positively impact social justice. A couple of times throughout the podcast, you're going to hear Alex reference Tom. He's referring to Tom Rand, the other guest we recorded at this event, whose episode will be released later this month. Tom is one of Canada's largest clean tech and green tech venture capitalists, so be sure to tune in and check that out. Lastly, be sure to stay tuned to the end of the episode where we share questions from the audience and play a track from Wolf Saga in full as Johnny lets us use his music in the podcast for free. A quick note, Wolf Saga was featured on the CBC last week, that's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and I would like to personally say congrats and thank you, Johnny. Now, without further ado, this is my conversation with Mr. Alex Gill. I hope you enjoy. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Alex Gill, uh, thank you for sitting down with us all today. Glad to be here. 
Alex is a social entrepreneur who co-founded uh, Ryerson University Social Venture Zone and serves as its first director. At Ryerson, Alex also teaches courses in creativity, innovation, and community engagement. His Toronto company, Mendicant Group, uh, has worked on social issues in 16 countries. Alex also moderates the G20 Young Entrepreneurs Alliance and was named by this magazine as one of Canada's social justice all-stars in 2015. Uh, if you could take a moment, Alex, and, and fill in some of the gaps for us. Like, where are you from? What do you love? What do you stand for? Because that's like your professional profile. Who, who is Alex Gill as a, as a person? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I grew up in rural Newfoundland. I grew up in a big family and in a mm, modest part of the country uh, where you have a lot of community networks between people, where people kind of support each other. But it's also part of the country where you don't write each other off. So something I've kind of carried through to my professional life is there's a lot of potential in every part of society. So how do we put the systems and the supports in place that actually say to anybody who could be an innovator, anybody who can make a difference, how can we support those people to kind of rise up and do what needs to be done? So I, I'd, I'd say I'm really lucky that I kind of have a career that takes creativity and entrepreneurship but applies it to that kind of really broad thing. It's about where's change going to come from. Beautiful. And, and we'll get to where change is going to come from and we'll get to uh, what exactly how the mendicant group um, makes that change happen. Uh, quickly to the idea of the podcast. When you think of the year 2084, what does that world look like? Uh, I'm an optimist. So it'd be really easy to paint a dystopian future. And we all know what that looks like. Um, or we all have individual versions of what that might look like. I think if you look that far in advance, I think we're going to find a way through the challenges that we're looking at, looking toward. It's not going to be easy, and we're probably going to have a few mistakes. Nobody saw Donald Trump coming a year and a half ago, right? I mean, there's there's going to be setbacks along the way, but I think if you if you look that far into the future, you're going to see elements of what we have now and what we've always valued: creativity, art, compassion, the things that knit human beings together and that have always knit human beings together. It's just what that looks like in a social setting is going to be a big question mark. Like, there's a thing in, in human history where we always overestimate the short-term impact of thing and totally underestimate the long-term impact. So everybody's freaking out about technology now. Let's wait 15 years and 20 years and see what technology's done to the fundaments of human society. That for me is a big question mark. I think we're going to be okay, but it's going to be a hell of a ride to get there. So you're a director at Ryerson Social Venture Zone. Yep. Uh, you're also a founder of the Mendicant Group. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today because not only do I view you as a mentor of mine, because um, I, for everybody out there, we're Sustainable Joe's The Good Card Co. is going through Ryerson Social Venture Zone's ideation session right now. So Alex has just dedicated so much time, um, not only to our venture, but other ventures to, to prosper and to, to foster social impact. So when you look at the mendicant group or when an outsider looks at the mendicant group, what would you say you do? That's really, really, that's a hard question because we always teach entrepreneurs in the social venture zone to give a good elevator speech. And I've been doing this for 12 years and I still struggle with the elevator speech. Essentially, there are countries and societies and everything all over the world that are grappling with social issues. Uh, and it could be something as small as how do you live sustainably in a neighborhood to something big, like how do you make a foster care system that profoundly fails children? How do you make that work better? The thing those, those things have in common is they need innovation and they need new ideas. So I like to think that we take 
the methods that help, whether it's Silicon Valley or Colgate Palmolive or whatever works, we take that methodology but apply it to social cause to try and get new ideas and new traction when it comes to human dignity. So it's about trying to fix social issues using whatever tool we can put on the table to move the markers in the right direction. So I really want to get to what those tools look like. And before we get there, I think it's important that we define like what are social issues as seen by the mendicant group and, and how do you define social justice? Yeah. Um, everybody can point to something and say that's a social issue. But for us, it kind of comes from does something amplify and reaffirm human dignity or does it oppress and demean and move human dignity in the wrong way, either for individuals or for groups of people? We often get into an argument about social justice where social justice for me has kind of been hijacked a little by our friends who are on the, the left side of the spectrum who justly see governments as the way to intervene in society and, and make social justice happen. We need a companion thing when it comes to social justice. I'm not saying that's not important because governments have done incredible things for people's living standards, for equalizing a lot of disparity in society. But we need to have a companion justice of opportunity. The thing that, that I think people need to start thinking more about, and we see this when we do work overseas, where you don't get a lot of default trust in government in many jurisdictions in the world. And when you probe into it, it's because Government is something that has been done to people in parts of the world that has oppressed them, where a lot of stuff has come from institutions that we normally trust and, 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 uh, and, and look to to help us. The justice that I like to, to, to frame and to put on as a, as a companion to working through systems, it's a justice of opportunity. It's how do you find ways to give people options and tools and ways to exert the thing that they value, which is often choice and direction and their own agency. How do you amplify that and make that a key player in what justice can look like. Justice is not just about, for me, systemic intervention, where we look to governments and say, could you figure this out? Justice is about how do you empower people at a fundamental level to actually do what they want to do collectively that moves us in the right direction. So what have you done? Like if we were to get like, uh, like on, on, on the streets, so to speak, yeah. like that's kind of high level. What, what has the mendicant group done and what successes have you realized and what tools have you utilized to realize those successes? Um, a, a good example, there's a bunch of examples, but a really good Ontario example. A couple of years ago, um, I mentioned foster care earlier. The system by which we take young people away from their parents and make the state their parent is a horrendous system. It's the best one we got, but it really doesn't produce great results for a lot of people who go into it. It would probably shock a lot of people in Ontario to know that we are, through the state, the parents of eight to 9,000 young people at any given time. We are their legal parent. We have, for whatever reason, said we are going to break the bonds of family and take you into care for very good reason. We don't do that lightly. But the damage that that creates among young people is a profound thing. So. We've always kind of looked at, as a society, how do you make this better? How do you, how, do you make, how do you deal with that issue? And we have a tried and true way we used to do that. It's we take a learned ex-justice and a former child uh, uh, affairs minister and a former head of a children's aid society. You put them on a panel. They write a report. The government looks at the report, puts it on a shelf, and four or five years later, somebody says, why is this system not working? And we do exactly the same thing over and over again. Uh, several years ago, the, the child advocate, Erwin Elman, who I'm a huge fan of, basically wanted to invert that process. And he said, can you work with us? And it was us and a bunch of other people got together around a table. And he said, I want to put young people at the center of what reform could look like. 
can we get young people who are in care to hold their own hearings at Queen's Park, call their own witnesses, write their own report, and stand in front of our Minister of the Crown and say, this is what kids in foster care need. Now that's a heretical idea. We had a ton of people who basically said, and it was an incredibly patronizing pushback that, by the way, was not based in fact. It was based in, I think, a patronizing view of what young people are capable of. People said, oh, well, the people like that, they, they can't do this. And Irwin, to his credit, said, how do we know that until we try? So that was a really cool project where we got to sit beside kids who were from CARE, who got to tell us in their own words, this is what it's like when children's aid shows up at your house at 8 a.m. and takes you out of the only thing you've ever known. This is what it's like when uh, a, a, a children's aid worker, through no fault of their own, takes all your stuffed animals at the age of six and puts them in a garbage bag to take you out of the house. The one young woman who related that said, I thought since they were throwing away the stuffed animals, they were going to throw me away too. Like getting that voice out within 18 months, those kids were amazing to work with. They're, they're, I learned so much from them. Within 18 months, we had a minister of the crown standing in front of them holding a report saying, we will implement this report. And it's working its way through the system now, but we've seen more change out of that in 18 months than I think I've seen in 20 years of trying to fix foster care. So that's a good example of taking a non-traditional creative approach to something where everybody says, well, everybody knows that won't work. One of my maxims is when somebody says, everybody knows, open your ears, because generally everybody doesn't know. We have, probably haven't even tried <laughs> it, right? In a market-driven world, how do we get people to care about social issues? Wow. I, I think people are hardwired to care about social issues, just as they're hardwired in some way to balance it with their own interest. We all know people are, are, are poor and suffering, so we walk by people on the street, but we often stop and help them but we don't give away all our possessions to them. So I think the fundamental thing is to recognize human beings are not wholly altruistic and wholly uh, selfish. There's always a blend in the middle. But I do think human beings are hardwired for empathy and they're hardwired to care about other people. So if you want to get people to care about social issues and get them to care about each other, find something that roots it in the compassion you should have for other people but also counteracts the dampening down effect we see of being confronted with so many problems. Like there's those great psychological experiments where if you shock the animal enough, it just stops responding because it says, there's nothing I can do anyway. We're all kind of living in that experiment where we're surrounded by things, whether it's the changing environment or the poverty we see every day or the indignity we see every day, where we're confronted all the time with, what are you gonna do? That's just the way it is. You gotta get people to start with a premise. That's not the way it has to be. And if you can root that in compassion, you got a shot. Do you think that there's an opportunity for the market potentially to accelerate social impact and, as you said, knit, knit people together? I, I think markets are overlooked and as an instrument for social change. And in some areas of social change, that's heretical because a lot of my confreres who are social activists basically say, anything touched by the market is bad. In fact, they'll say, you're a, you're a neoliberal conspirator if you're thinking that markets will actually do anything. If you can find a way to harness what markets do well to deliver social good, why wouldn't you? We're doing a podcast right now and a really great example of a really good company. Bullfrog Power is an amazing company. You guys who work there should be really proud of this because we've got a market dynamic. The secret of Bullfrog Power is I think you're incredibly profitable. I know you probably don't say that in your introductions, but there's a lot of money to be made in, in things like this. If we can find a way to tap the mechanisms of the market that say to people, I can pay my bills and deliver a, a return to a shareholder and solve a problem, why wouldn't we do it? 
Uh, I think we can, if with the right kind of frame, harness markets to deliver social good. That's one thing that social incubators like the Social Ventures Zone are trying to do. Come up with those new business models that deliver the public good, but also pay people's bills. Well, well let's go there. What, what are those new business models that that uh, do good and uh, pay pe- people's bills? I'll, I'll give you an example. It's, it's probably one of the more prominent examples we've got in the zone right now. Um, there's a way that we generally have dealt in the past with human rights abuses globally and in supply chains. Like we're all probably wearing clothing right now that has been sewn or touched by a child. And that's one of the things we normalize, right? What are you going to do? We can't, we can't walk around with barrels on. We can't all weave our own clothing. So we all make compromises. We have a, a venture that is probably going to be one of the highest initially valued social ventures in the country to come out of the startup ecosystem that looks at that as a business problem. And the business problem is, if you're running a company and get caught with slavery and human rights abuses in your supply chain, the damage to your business is massive. So they're not framing it as a human rights issue. They're all rights activists, and they're hardcore, really want to help people, people. But they're framing the problem as a business problem. And the reason investors are really interested in it, uh, they went out and did some research and said, if you look at supply chain issues in Canada, how much does that cost Canadian companies? And in terms of lawsuits settled in the country, not filed, settled, it's about $11 billion a year. There's a hard cost to corporations of $11 billion if you don't manage your supply chain right. What a great business case that is if you go in and say, you know what, you need our technology and our efforts to monitor your supply chain, tell you when there are problems in it so that you need to address them because if not, you're going to get nailed over here. And if the company says, well, you know, the insurance companies might just, they can take care of that. We'll pay an insurance premium. You go up the chain to the insurers and say, do you want to lower the premiums for these guys or increase them? Because we can tell you what the human, all of a sudden you've got a whole new leverage and a whole new business model that didn't exist before. Like that's a good example. Like we used to know how to uh, confront human rights. Many of you are probably members of Amnesty. Amnesty is a great organization. That's the activism side of human rights. Imagine if you can make human rights abuses a business issue for a multinational corporation that they have to mitigate. All of a sudden, you've got a new lever to get globally leveraging human rights. That's a different way to do it. So when it comes to design thinking, innovation, social impact, you've said that innovation doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be a good idea. What advice would you give people out there who want to innovate, who want to have social impact, with regards to a strategy to, to take first steps? Oh, uh, good question. We often get caught up in tech innovation, right? Everybody says, oh, well, we know what innovation looks like, and they'll point to a tech incubator, they'll point to Silicon Valley, and that's great. There's a lot of neat stuff coming out of there. So the first thing is inc- uh, innovation doesn't have to be tech-focused, doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be good. And one of the biggest pitfalls that people fall into in innovation is A, they try to innovate incrementally, which is okay. They don't want to step back and say, why don't we try X and see if it works? But they also try to, as human beings, we fall in love with tools. We're tool-focused people. We advanced through human evolution because we saw a rock and turned it into an ax, or we saw a stick and turned it into into a spear. We're We're programmed to look at tools. The biggest barrier I find initial innovators have is that they focus on the tool and try to make it fit the problem. They don't fall in love with the problem. Like if you know a problem inside and out and you're in and you really want to solve that problem, like you're all here tonight because of sustainability, boy, have we got some problems in sustainability. (laughs) But if you internalize that, the first tool you come up with might not fit. But if you look at it and say, well, that tool didn't work, but I still want to fix the problem. Your knowledge of the problem will lead you in the right way. 
The thing that we say in the, the social venture zone is, it's kind of like Buddhism where they say, leap and the net will appear. Love the problem and the tool will reveal itself to you. And if not that tool, then another one. So how do you fall in love with a problem? Like what, what are the steps to fall in love with a problem? Uh, what are the steps to truly identify a problem? I, I, I wish that it was that easy. Universities, by the way, would love it if we could credential people in problems. <laughs> Come on in, we'll give you a credential in sustainability problem stuff. And people would walk out caring about sustainability. Part of it is you got to know yourself. So self-knowledge is a good route to become an activist, right? So you can t I, I can talk to people about what, what they care about, and usually something will come up where they light up and they're like really passionate about something. And all of a sudden, oh, well, there's something here. You, you, you got to bring something out there. So falling in love with the problem, you got to find something initial that you really care about. And usually it's rooted in your own experience. I, I get really excited about things that level out injustice because I've seen enough of it, but I've also been subject to it. Can you give us an example? I had a high school uh, vice principal once who said to me, you might not want to go to university, it's not for people like you. Oh. And what he meant was it's not for poor people like you. I mean, I, I've, I, I grew up in, in modest circumstances, so often you're on the receiving end of things that kind of, if you don't have good self-esteem, you can understand how people get marginalized. So, and I've, I've never actually really shared that story before, but that's a good example of how if you've internalized something like that, that's one of the reasons I respond so well to people who are trying to fight injustice, because even if you got a sense of what it feels like, right, you, you got it. So once you figure out what's in you that really gets, gets, gets you going, then it's a question of going at your problem through a whole bunch of different things and immersing yourself in it. And you, you know you're on the right track where if somebody says, tell me about something, and then they have to stop you like half an hour later. It happens to me all the time, right? You know, like, oh, okay, actually, that's a good sign. I'm really sorry I bored you for a half an hour, but this is really important. I really like this. Or, or maybe you excited them, and maybe they were just excited to hear the information. Yeah. Um, when you talk to entrepreneurs, whether it's in the social venture zone or you talk to an NGO with the, the mendicant group, what are the standard traps and failures that entrepreneurs or organizations get caught in? Wow. Well, I talked about loving the problem, not the tool. Tool, tool focus is a big thing. There's also a, there's also a lot of issues around people thinking it's easy. It's, it's not easy. And that's not to discourage anybody, but if you go into entrepreneurship thinking it's all about a whack of dough and uh, it's only going to take 10 months and all of a sudden I'm going to be driving a Jag. Like that's, there's a lot of people in entrepreneurship who kind of think that way. They get disabused of it very quickly. There's a reason money's valuable because it's really hard to get. Tom is going to talk about the investment side. I don't think you shovel money at people who walk in with a kind of a half-baked idea. They'll put you through a lot of due diligence before somebody unlocks a purse and gives you money. So a lot of them think money is easy to get and problems are easy to solve. And I think unless you really care about it, you're not going to put in the hard time. Like uh, Rohit Saxena, who's my business partner, great guy. At one point, we're in the office late at night, and we're working on something, and the place is in chaos, and there's pizza boxes and whatever. And he kind of laughed. He said, why do we do this? And I said, isn't it obvious? It's a glamour. Look at this. This is great. <laughs> like, if you, would, if, if you would look at this, at something like that, and say, there's no, uh, I, this really doesn't excite me, you're not going to do what you need to do. Like, entrepreneurship is, you know, four in the morning, you're still working at something because you really believe in it. You really want to make it work. But the thing I'll say that for-profit and social entrepreneurs share I don't really see a lot of division when it comes to the way they look at problems. The motivation might be different, but they're inherent problem solvers. So you can, I, we've, we do all the work we do around the world, we'll throw a problem on the table and it's a social entrepreneur who's got a small startup in rural Mexico and somebody who's running an IT company in France and they're talking the same language. They're looking at the problem saying, maybe we could do it this way. How about that? Have we thought about that? 
that that's why I'm optimistic about the future of humanity, because if you get enough people who have the right kind of grounding and the right kind of compassion and get them together and start solving problems, we got a shot. Not going to be easy, but we got a shot. You love Twitter. Tom also loves Twitter. If you could send a tweet to the entire world, and we're going wow. old school here, wow. 140 characters. Wow. What would, what would that tweet say? And that's, that's assuming everybody, all 7.5 billion people had, had a phone to, to receive it on. Wow. I, uh, oh, okay, I'm gonna game the question. Because when we say to people in the zone, there is no one audience for anything. So you can always segment, so I'd segment in two. The people who have the resources and the ability to do something, I tweet at them and say, um, you need to care more, and trust me, you're really gonna like it. And to the people who don't have the resources but really need something, I tweet, you know what? We're in solidarity with you, and let's get together and do something. So it's letting people, acknowledging that we know you're going through something, it's a fundament of empathy. We know you're going through something, how can we help? And by the way, you guys have a lot you can do to help. You need to come over here with us. Last, Two audiences. Last question. If we solve social justice issues, would the world be more profitable and harmonious or just more harmonious? I think that's a trick question. I don't know if we're ever going to solve social justice issues. Cause, <laughs> cause it's a, cause, but, but it's an escalating margin, right? It's, it's like an escalating goal. We never quite get there. Like if we'd had this conversation 100 years ago, half the people in this room would not be legal people because they're women. And you know what social justice would look like then? We'd have a huge discussion about how we're excluding half of you. you we should do something about this. Well, women became legal people 1924, 1926. You have a lot of problems we have to deal with there. But all of a sudden, the, the, the bar moved. So I don't think we're going to get to a point where we have perfect justice. But also, we, do we really know if we want a perfectly harmonious society, or do human beings thrive where things are not exactly right and the struggle actually defines about where we're going and it defines our humanity? That's a big kind of philosophical question. I happen to think, I'm not a Nietzschean, but I do believe that there is something about human beings are focused about thriving and problem solving and overcoming with each other. Beautiful, back to knitting people together. Alex Gill, thank you so much. Thank you, it was awesome. Cheers. No, no, stay right there. Oh, okay. Question, oh. question number one comes from uh, Mr. Tom Rand. Oh, yeah, they, one of the uh, the the fun, <coughs> the fun dynamics of live events is uh, the the other guest always delivers the first question. Ah, okay. So I, I was going to ask you an easy one about scale, but when you mentioned Nietzsche, I thought I would come up with a harder one. <laughs> <laughs> I had to mention Nietzsche. Are you familiar with the philosopher John Gray? By uh, chance? No. So, okay, so John Gray in a nutshell, believes that progress, in particular social justice progress, progress in the way in which we treat each other, is highly contingent on a degree of economic security and a degree of, of infrastructure around us that mm -hmm. includes energy systems, economic systems, food systems, and so on. How much, I mean, it's a difficult question to sort of pin down, but how much do you think the tie between civilized behavior and lasting civic institutions, how close is that tie? You had mentioned at the beginning that you believe there was, a, there was empathy in us, which I agree yeah. with, but how much of our ability to, to express that empathy is dependent upon a functioning civic infrastructure? Oh, good question. I think to a certain degree, I agree with you that, and this is a whole hierarchy of needs thing, you're not going to look to recognize the dignity of other people if you're starving, you're gonna take care of your food, your, your food needs first. Um, we need, I'm, I'm going to reframe the, 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 the question in that 
I think we need infrastructure around us that reinforces what's naturally in us as people. Like we have a lot that's around us that brings out the worst in us. If you look at what's on a lot of Instagram, we, we, we used to have an, a, an argument about the objectification of women in the mass media. Just go to Instagram, the, you've, the battle's been lost. It's, there are images there that people are putting out that I find profoundly demeaning to half the population, but I can only say so much about that because I'm not, I'm not the direct target of that. So I think we need things that are around us that essentially look at the things that are in us that need to be nurtured. And it's not just the, the large, writ large government systems. I think the transit system could do a lot more to reaffirm human dignity. I think public art could do a lot more to kind of reinforce the creative part of our brain. I think if we had ways that didn't, inf didn't enforce people walking by and not seeing each other, we actually had to look other people in the eye. If I had to pass a rule, I'd say everybody who gets in an elevator, every second person has to turn around and look at the person in front of them. We, you could change society with little things like that. So, so I think, to a, I, agreed, I agree with the, the, the premise of the question that if there are things in society that are um, conspiring against us paying attention to each other and paying attention to human dignity, you know what, we're going to pay attention to what we're nudged to do. But we need to look at it, I think, the other way, which is there's an opportunity to design a lot of small and big stuff in society that can reinforce our natural propensity to want to be empathetic to each other. Next question. To what extent does partisan politics play a role in our ability to do what you were just talking about, which is uh, empathize with our neighbors, and uh, what can be done through um, through entrepreneurship to facilitate the coming together of uh, of uh, split um, split attention? Wow. Um. The political question is a really good question. I haven't been in a gathering in the last 18 months where somebody hasn't mentioned polarization, Donald Trump, and what's going on in society. So I'm going to address that first. Except this conversation. I Actually, I think I mentioned Trump first. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> I, was, I was the guy. Um, there's, with polarization, we're seeing two things kind of come together. One is what technology is doing, and the other one is what politics has already done, and those things are kind of coming together. So in terms of technology, again, we look at the short-term thing and we overestimate it. The long-term, we, we underestimate. We're essentially becoming increasingly digital-thinking people. In a way, I don't think we used to be. I think we used to be much more analog. We all had friends that were a little inappropriate sometimes or a little stupid sometimes or a little whatever, and you tolerated it because you tolerated the whole package. And increasingly, we're becoming digital. It's an on-off thing. And, and in social activism, by the way, we are the worst for that. We, we turn our guns inward and shoot each other all the time. When you turn on other social activists, it's, it's bad. And, but I see that all the time, where in a way that I didn't used to see it, I think the technology is exacerbating the divisions that are already there in people, both in politics and in the way we relate to each other. So it could be if I'm a vegan and you're a vegetarian, well, at least we have some common ground. I've seen vicious online battles between people who are, I'm, I'm not a pure, I'm a more pure vegan than you are, and we're all arguing about escalating purity, but what we're really saying is, I'm turning my off switch so that you're off and I'm on. And if we keep doing that, we get smaller and smaller and smaller groups of people who are pure, and they're not authentic. I hate to tell, it, tell you, we're, we're, we're all imperfect, horribly uncertain, imperfect human beings all the time. Beautifully flawed. Yeah, be 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 good way to put it. We're all beautifully flawed, except the dynamics that are in not only politics but are being exacerbated by technology are pushing us in the other way. 
We're saying, I'm going to deny the humanity that we see in each other because I'm going to pretend that I'm my social media profile and I'm going to judge you. We don't need, that's a good example, Tom, what we were talking about earlier about we don't need things in society that latch onto the bad things in people. Judgment is an inherent human thing and I'm afraid that where politics and technology is going, we're ratcheting the dial on that one up a lot. And that's corrosive. It's corrosive for the respect we should have for each other. That sounds like a, a good venture for the social venture zone, if anybody wants to take that on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but th there's a good example. What could we do? Because we, we all know that we could recognize that kind of need. How do you find something that is a self-sustaining, self-generating engine that can bring people together? So is it the anti-echo chamber? Do you come up with a social media thing that uses a reverse algorithm that brings people who are unalike together? God, give that a shot. I'd love to see that. Another question? So I actually noticed that Bullfrog was a B Corp, um, which to me is an interesting sort of concept because I've always said that one of the biggest issues with society is that we define or the way that we define a corporation. Yeah. So I guess the question is, do you think that there's going to need to be some legal shift in how we define a corporation to really make some big waves? Or do you think that we as humans can just sort of get out of this dollars and cents definition of ROI and value? Oh, that's a really good question. We need new ways to measure ROI, and we're in the infancy of doing that. We need new, new ways to capitalize around social stuff, and I think Tom's probably going to talk about that, like the whole social bond issue. and that's the, We're in the early days of doing that stuff. We need legal structures to catch up to where we need to go, and that's also not easy because we make a lot of government policy, especially with the economy, by looking in the rearview mirror. Corporations have always looked like that. That's what they looked like in the 50s. We're not looking out here. We're not looking forward. So if we know that we need new and innovative ways to have a sustainable structure around, per, about around social good, we get up, by the way, we get off track in the debate about corporations. Uh, Joel Bakken's book from UBC where he said, the corporation is a sociopath and it's evil. We should get rid of them all. That's digital thinking. Like I, I appreciate a lot of his reasoning, but you can't write off. All a corporation is is a form that survives people that get stuff done. It's an artificial form to do stuff. It's like a greenhouse or something. So we need to catch up with, with what the, we know the instruments need to look like, but it's not going to be easy. The B Corp movement's a great example of how they're trying to take corporations and turn them a little to make them a little more socially just. Awesome. Uh, Michael Jancy and Sustainalytics are doing a lot of neat stuff around measurement, stuff like that. There have been a whole bunch of corporate social responsibility things. The, the thing that I will caution, though, is when we come up with systems that are designed to encourage corporations to be ethical, often they try to game the system rather than have a reflection of their true ethics in the, in the measurement. Um, there was a, a great study done a few years ago where they measured our Canadian corporations becoming more uh, socially responsible, and the good news was they were, but the bad news was it's because we were measuring policies and we were measuring outcome, and they were all adopting policies, so the measure went up. We have an equity policy. Great, awesome. But are you putting it into practice? Is it actually delivering a result in the community? That's where it gets a little iffy. Corporations often have a, a motivation driven by short-term results to game the system. And that's where, that's where we need to focus on better people in addition to better systems. Alex Gill, thank you so much. Thank you. That was great. Thank you all. That was, great. That was my conversation with Mr. Alex Gill. How incredible is that man, right? The best way you can connect with Alex is via Twitter, at Alex Gill. It'll be in the show notes. 
As always, if you know someone or some company that is creating a sustainable tomorrow right now, let us know and maybe we will highlight them right here on the podcast. We're also looking for our first Sustainable Joe's 2084 intern. If you're interested, please send an email to 2084 at sustainablejoes.com. You can subscribe to 2084 wherever you get your podcasts and do me a favor and please leave us a review while you're there. Lastly, big thanks to Koji Nagata for letting me use his gear to record this episode. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, and music was again provided by Johnny of Wolf Saga. If you've yet to give him a like on a social media platform, do it now. And if you've yet to watch our documentary, you can watch it for free right now at sustainablejoes.com. As always, if you value this content and want to help us keep creating it, there's no better way than to become a patron of Sustainable Joes right now. Thank you for listening, and make it a great week, everyone.
Say the same. 